You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. How the devil is everyone doing today? In the studio, I have today the queen of LinkedIn, as I have dubbed her. The queen of construction LinkedIn, as I have dubbed her. I've got Patricia Haywood, who is the director and commercial lead at Haywood Consulting, who are a construction consultancy leveraging contracts to drive profits. Patricia is not only a lawyer, a QS, an adjudicator, a mediator, but she is so much more than that. And honestly, I'm delighted to have her in the studio, not because, not least because of who she is, but also the fact that she's always smiling from ear to ear, which makes the whole process a lot nicer for me. I love doing these contractual episodes, as everyone knows. Patricia, welcome to Own the Build. How are you? Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I'm doing great. <laughs> See what I was saying, guys? She's always laughing and smiling. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're going to get into the meat of the show shortly. But one of the things that I found particularly charming about you, but I'm not sure that people on the other side would necessarily find charming about you, is that, is that you actually went from being a lawyer to becoming a QS. It almost feels like like the back-to-front journey. Some people go from the QS through to mediator, adjudicator, etc., but you must have been a very scary QS to be sat opposite talking about commercial negotiations, considering that you were actually a lawyer first. <laughs> you know, I tend to do things back the back way. <laughs> um, and yes, you're right. Most of the people I meet on my journey, they were a QS and then, you know, they ventured into being a lawyer. I think partly because we still have this fascination and this belief or we hold certain professions, you know, high up. So I think that's where it comes from. A, a lot of people I, I meet, they think that's their ultimate goal and dream. And so being a QS or working in the space the way we do like on site is just a stopgap en route to that path. But for me, this is where the fun is. <laughs> I don't know about anybody else, but the fun <laughs> is here on site every day, working with all these technically skilled people and learning a lot from them. So I did law. I tried going to court. Let me tell you, court was not for me. I, I quickly realized because in British law, when you're a barrister, you sit in front of the dock. I remember the first trial. So when I got called to the bar, it was a QC who was a family friend and she did criminal law. So I thought, okay, I would model her. You know, she, I could not do it. I sat in front of the dock. It was a criminal trial and I was shaking in my boots. I, was just, <laughs> this, I, I did not have the stomach for it. <laughs> and so I quick, I quickly left that and moved into corporate commercial law. And that was fascinating. But what I found is that we're often at the end when things go wrong, then that that's when people come to us. And we see it in construction where it's often at the end, payment problems, change problems. 
it's adjudication, it's litigation, it's um, credit person to go and hunt down this person. That's when people tend to come to us. And I saw that we needed to put more emphasis on the front end, which is setting up the contracts, setting up the projects to win. Because I, I believe that a lot of the issues that you have at the end, the payment issues, are front-end issues that can be fixed. I was listening to a, a quote of the day today and the guy said that he came to fix something. There was a crack in the building on the 42nd floor and the person brought him and said, you need to go up to the 42nd floor. And he said, no, I need to go to the basement. You know, that's that's where the problem is. And, and so I found that I could okay, bring more. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, when you come in and a lot of a lot of the times when I'm brought in on projects is to is because there's a break. So I, I tend earlier I used to be the break fix girl. <laughs> you know, the project has broken and now I've been brought in to fix. And the fix is often a band-aid, you know, get us more money, get us a supplemental agreement. We need more and more money. But it's a band-aid to a problem that started in the front end. And so why I'm here at this point is because I see that we need to go to the basement and really fix the contracts there, fix the relationships there, the boundaries and the expectations. And for me, that's where the fun is. The fun is not at the back when you're not getting you that that's not the fun. I wanna I wanna be there with you in the thick of things, you know, in my my boots and my hard hat helping yeah, you brilliant. get the money out out of it now. <laughs> Fantastic. So I'm interested to learn because it's 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 an interesting it's more it's a fascinating journey, you know, to commercial construction, quantity surveying, whatever you want to call it, via the criminal court system. Like it's such an interesting journey that you went on. What's one thing that you wish you had known about construction? before making the move into construction? Well, we all know it's 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 male-dominated. We all know you have to be tough out there. But I wish I'd known just how tough I had to be in the beginning. I don't think I, I understood my power enough. I was pushed around quite a bit in the industry when I started. I guess it's a rite of passage. You pay the price, right? You pay the price. And I paid the price. I, because... You know, like my family has a a brief history in construction. Everybody knows everybody knows someone who works on a site, right? <laughs> but you don't necessarily have that mentor to guide you. Especially, I'm a woman. I'm an immigrant. You know, I'm not I'm not originally from the UK, and so I'm I'm sure a lot of immigrants out there, you know, can understand and they'll understand is it's very different I've found when you're an immigrant working on a site and I paid the price and it took me a while to realize it also took me a while to realize just the value that I brought and be able to stand in the power in in what I know and and to do what I know I can do it's it's really interesting last last week we had three female leaders from Axel on on the show and we were actually talking about you know toughness or it, I'm for all this is it's an inverted commas that I'm doing toughness I'm yeah. actually telling a story about my partner she's in construction and she was once told you need to be tougher yes um, I'm not going to repeat that again because the listeners probably heard enough about it <laughs> last time round but interested just because you said you paid the price 
for that. What does that mean? What what happens? Like, is there certain situations on negotiations you were in where you felt um, that you paid the price? Uh, when I say pay the price, in everything we pay the price, right? You pay the price to live the life that you live. You pay the price to be in the industry, to rise through the ranks. And it doesn't have to be anything um, bad. And it's not necessarily that it should be expected. I'm not saying it, it should be expected because I believe each generation should make it easier for the next coming. So they don't have to pay the price that we pay. But I'm, I just mean in, in, in terms of... Um, just the expectations, the working environment, um, this view that you have to be a certain way, you know, you have to walk and talk a certain way in, in that respect and, and be tough. And, and, you know, and I struggled with it because I'm, as you can tell, you know, <laughs> I'm not the tough person, you know, I'm not going to show up as I like, get to really? work. That, that's not me. I'm, I'm, that's not who I am. And, you know, one, one of the things that a colleague said to me um, once, because I asked her, she said, you know, Patricia, when we meet you, some people may think you're a pushover, you know? And so I get that quite a bit. And so people push boundaries, especially on construction sites. You know, in construction, people will push boundaries. It's it's a traditional sector. It's dominated by, you know, certain players, and they will push. They will push you to see. So that's definitely true, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, they'll 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 do it. I've they'll... I've I've had that experience as well, where I think probably the nature of my personality probably has meant that people, you know, try and particularly because it's such a pushy industry in that respect, particularly on the commercial negotiations. That yes, you are trying at all times to push those boundaries. So that definitely resonates with yeah. my experience as well and and it's not even you know women yeah we we have that issue but even men too right in the industry there's certain there's some men they don't want to be forced to behave a certain way just the the things that happen on site we have a huge mental health issue you just want to be able to show up to work and do good work and go home but in this industry I've found, and I've worked in various other industries across pollinate, and I've found that the price often that you pay is a really high one from an employee standpoint to even an employer standpoint, even as a subcontractor, a contractor, um, the price that you pay mentally, for example, with payment issues is high, you know, even, even looking at from it from their standpoint. You know that people push boundaries. How late can I take to pay you? You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you're absolutely right, and it's it, it's fascinating that you say these things, um, Patricia. And I, I think that almost segues us quite nicely onto the like the the real meat of the conversation, if you like, which is about how do you get the contract right in construction. I called you earlier the Queen of LinkedIn uh, <laughs> because you are doing every single day every single week these fantastic posts where you're talking with real candor about your experiences as there's some we're going to get onto them a bit later on in the show because I think it's really interesting but your your focus for those posts holistically or when I when I take a step back is all about like how do you get the contract right and I want to talk to you about main contractors and subcontractors you've just talked then about the price you pay for payment and all these different things really great phrase and way of looking at things but let's talk about being a main contractor 
which I know you've done it yourself in the past. What does getting the contract right mean to you for a main contractor? Okay, so first, so a lot of the projects that I work on are major infrastructure projects, right? Since going off on my own that I've I've been fortunate to work on lower value contracts, which is great. So I, I believe first, and a lot of these projects are publicly funded. So I believe it starts first with the client or the employer. That's where it starts. And it's about having responsible um, clients and employers who understand that how you allocate risks need to be fair. And so if you're a main contractor, it is about having a contract that sets out exactly what you need to deliver, uh, how you're going to deliver it, when you're going to, what are the boundaries around this delivery. And also it needs to be fair in the allocation of risks and in the compliance. The compliance can't be too high. So, you know, I've worked, for example, in offshore wind where the insurance requirements are just prohibitive to SMEs. You just can't. There's no way you can pay those premiums. You know, so how can that be? I was, sorry to, I was just with a client today who was doing a 100K build, really small build, got some complexities to it. And they were suggesting to me that because their insurance requirement for them to not be in breach of their insurance, they need all of their subcontractors to have to mirror their insurance, which was 5 million public and product insurance. And they were tendering for what would be a £5,000 painting and decorating package or le- like a nothing. And I said... Yes, that's just crazy. Insane. I was like, you, you can't expect that. And he he was saying, well, I can't help it. The insurer is um, asking me to do the same and et cetera. And, I mean, that's a poor example, but it's but there, just but there that way, allocation of risk is... Just... Yeah, there are workarounds to that. So I've had that repeatedly. And there are ways to get around it, to to bring all your suppliers together, all your subcontractors together, and put something in place that, especially if these are specialists, um, subcontractors and suppliers who you know can do good work, you have a relationship with them, you are able to structure something that would help to just, because these are huge risks for them, it's huge compliance requirements, and you can help them, especially as a main contractor, a main contractor who as a parent, especially an international parent, they have that pool. So when I was working with May contractors, I would meet with our underwriters and meet with our insurers. We'll have these lunches and discussions and talk about risk and where it is and everything. So if if you are a good main contractor, you have that relationship. So oftentimes when they're saying, oh, we can't do it, you know, or, yes, to a point, but you have that relationship where you can sit down with them and come together and say, okay, we have these five, 10 suppliers, you know, the insurance is high, that is required. How can we pull together something that will cover, you know, everybody? Because we have, we have it's that. It's funny because it mm-hmm. strikes me that the mentality, you've talked about how do you allocate risks and then we've talked then about main contract, subcontract relationship. It strikes me that much of the thinking, and this resonates with my own experiences, is that, a main contractor will often think to a subcontractor, well, I'll just need to go back to back. Back to back, back to back is, is the thing. And, and and that mentality then breeds, it's oversimplifying and you're not really allocating risks down the supply chain in a intellectual or 
thoughtful manner. You're just saying I want back to back. What do you think about I, that? I definitely think it's it's not it's not a philosophy that is right in every instance, and I believe law is fun when you work in the gray areas. <laughs> that that's when law becomes fun, and so unfortunately we've adopted this philosophy of you just go back to back and and everybody has adopted it and a part of it is because of our practice of copy and paste <laughs> and pasting things that we don't necessarily understand in terms we don't necess- necessarily understand and also it it also has to do with the fact that as a lawyer you feel often that you have to represent your client to the fullest and it's the interest of the client but really when you go to law school and you study to become a lawyer, you represent justice, right? That's what you stand for, justice. And so what does that mean? To me, that means that my contract needs to be fair. Yes, you're paying me to work for you. But if I represent justice, because that's the scale, that's what we work with, then it needs to be fair. I need to say to you as my client, I know that you want me to push these down to you know, all these supplies, but these supplies are not able to, to do that. And I've had these discussions with, with clients where they push these things down on the supply chain. And then I say to them, okay, let's do a map to see just where all your risks are, what's going on. Um, they'll push down, for example, as you, you've suggested, insurance. And they'll say, oh, you must have 10 million you know, coverage or five. And then you go to the supplier and they're like, we don't have that. Like, there's no way we could get that out. It's, I can't it's, pay it's that. It's hilarious, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that, form of ri- that form of risk management, that mentality of risk management, where you're effectively saying, oh, here's, here's a big risk. I'm going to throw it somewhere else to someone who may say that they can manage it, but almost certainly but in cannot practice, manage no it. in practice, no one is managing it. It's not it. risk management whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, you're it's actually just... holding that risk because no one is doing it. But it's, it's just out, out I'm, of I'm sight. I'm really interested. <laughs> Out of sight, exactly, out of, out of sight, but potentially not out of yeah. mind. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to talk to you. I think what you've touched on there is interesting. I really want to talk to you about working in the grey areas. That's where you get excited and about justice because I think that's all so applicable to construction contracts and we don't talk about it enough. But we'll do more of that after this break, Patricia. Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded Sealink with my best mate Chris. Chris and I, we're both QSs, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. Law is fun 
when you work in the grey areas. That is a quote I like, Patricia. I'm going to run with that, probably for the rest of this episode, if not beyond. It's interesting, and I can, I have a perception of what you mean by that, but I'm interested to understand what you really mean and how you can apply that or people can apply that to construction contracting. So there are two ways to look at it, but for this purpose, I'll just say that for many lawyers, I wouldn't say all, law is fun in the gray areas. So normally, you, you know, you have black or white, you have one side, the other, but in the gray areas, often where you have that little bit of ambiguity, it's where you can play, it's where you can play with words, interpretation, definition of things. And uh, as a lawyer, it's fun. That's when you come alive in the interpretation. What does this mean? How does this apply in any given environment? So that's great. That's what we love. That's what we do. But on the other hand, it, it has the ability to, for us to, to then always be in that space and not think of people outside of that space who, who, who are non-lawyers, who are working with these things in, in, in practice day to day. And so that, that's why, you know, we come up with, with clauses that uh, you read it and you don't necessarily understand. It's fun for us. And that's why we go to court to say, hey, can you explain this? Because even the drafting of, um, you know, it's an, it's an art form drafting everybody has their way their way of drafting their little quirks how they they phrase things and then the rest of us copy and paste <laughs> copy and paste it <laughs> but, but generally in in that space can can be very fun and even in so when you draft that way it works for the party who you're drafting it for it can work against them also. But what that means is that in practice with the contract on a site is that not the boundaries aren't clear. You don't necessarily know what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to do it and when. And that leads to interpretation. And some people like this. It's um, not telling you the full story. And it, it's a, for some, it's a strategy, right? And that's why you have contracts, design and build contracts, and the design, it makes no sense, or it's not fully there. That's why you have terms that say, for example, you've deemed to have read everything. Come on, we know you don't read everything, but these little gray areas we like to play in. And then we draft it that way. And then in the back end, it brings us more work because you're going to need us to then interpret these things. And you're going to need us when, you know, things hit the fan to go to adjudication or litigation and go and then we can give these nice. So, so, so it's really fun for the lawyer to be in this, in this great space. Cause that's where you have like the creative license, etc. But the reality being that. That's that... where we get very creative. Yeah. And that's, it's, I mean, it's not a blanket statement. It's not for everyone isn't like that. You have some really good lawyers out there who are very practical, but that's our creative space. That's when we get to to play with things a little bit because law can be quite black and white most of the time. So that's where we get to, you know, do or design. But yeah. what you're saying is that actually that grey space is often what holds us back as construction contractors in that there's ambiguity 
it bring it breeds that in in many cases now this is in terms of contract the gray space in terms of litigation and stuff is it can be quite fun and that helps your client to win and you know all that and the gray space in other areas like tax for example can be quite good for you <laughs> you know if it's not clear let's not let's know, not talk about gray space in tax we go offshore, way off you know <laughs> like the, so it's different in in different contexts and cir- in circumstances but i'm saying in terms of um construction contracts and why we have a lot of issues around own terms and you know NEC contracts that are like 500 pages long with Z clauses as is or need to be in that grade that gray space and in that gray space we can cover all eventualities we can dream dream up what if this happens then this apply what if that happens then that? meanwhile th- that might never have happened or in practice that means nothing to me on a construction side i need to know if weather applies or not full stop i don't need to know if it's how if the sun is you know or the moon is in a crest or the, i just need to know you know if this happens you know how much centimeters of water how much of, and so what what i found is that it requires a lot more clarity and it requires you to understand that that, that these, these are people's lives. These are actual things that we're building for people and how these, it really, how the contract really works in practice. I always say that the words of the contract dances on site. The words come off the page and they dance. You see it in the project manager, the designer, the engineers, they play out in theater. Yeah, I mean, what I used to always do, and I think that there is a there's a real argument to say that the way construction contracts are drafted, even the standard suites of contracts, so your NECs and JCTs, there's a real argument to suggest that even those forms of contracts, which are non-amended, are not fully understood by the lion's share of the industry, whether that's QSs, project managers, whoever. What I did to try and make things simple like practically was I would simplify a contract into a few pages for the project team to try and make it not dance so much but try and make it comprehensible but I believe that regardless of the grey area even when it's black and white i.e. your JCTs and your NECs contracts are still misunderstood in almost all cases or not fully understood in construction is your experience the same? Well in construction, you know, what I've found is that not everyone necessarily on the team is commercially minded and not everyone should be. And uh, and not not ev- therefore not everyone will understand the contract in its full and its fullest form. Your role as and and this comes back to the change in role of like a, a quantity surveyor or a commercial manager because traditionally on you know your QS or commercial manager, you come on site, you're doing change, you're doing a lot of admin stuff, you know, you're managing quotations and but where you need to add value to the team is ensuring that the team understands how the contract relates to them. It's like when you're building a business and you have your goal, you need to distill it so that all your employees know how they fit within that, what's their contribution and how the goal helps them as well. And so it's the same thing as the QS and the commercial manager. You need to ensure that members of your team understand how the contract fits in with their work, you know, and what they need to take from the contract and how 
I agree. It's working practice. Agree. And if it's not working, then that needs to be fed back to the QS or the commercial manager so that they How can. How do you do that? You do that by one, by capacity development, sitting on site, for example, is sitting down with the design team and saying, what does it mean? What the contract means for your team? What is what is the design? Uh, one of the things that um, I was on a project and that we had was changes. So the design team would um, authorize these changes that supposedly the PM knew or was supposed to know because of course as a team you're having discussions so they'll be like this needs to be changed and say, oh, okay you know, but the instructions should come from the PM right and so or the, the the employer or the main contractor is instructing changes to the design team that is not captured a change and so for example it's setting up the design team this is what the contract says let's have one person on this team who owns this part of the change process so when a change comes, if they instruct you to do something, it might be a great idea, but then let's trigger something because we need to get paid. Because when the company gets paid, then we make a, a this is a profit. <laughs> and it's based on that, that then you will we'll get, get a bonus paid. at the end and, of the job. Or whatever, you know, yeah. I always say that. Uh, when I'm working with uh, a contractor, is they'll be they'll be like, we're in the business of making things. I'm like, no, we're in the business of making money. Honestly, that's what we're in the business of doing because if you don't make money, you can't make things. And a lot of people think making money is such a terrible thing. You know, we make things, we were engineers and stuff. But the the reality is that you need money in order to do all the things that you want to do. And so if that part isn't taken care of, then yeah, and the contract, the the contract is about setting up what you're going to do but it's also important for you to know how you get paid when you get paid what you get paid for what are the changes the the, the money needs to flow out of the contract and so it's distilling that to each each function within on, on the site or within the organization that this is how the contract works for you and let them understand that. And in it's about your function of design. Yeah, yeah in your, your function, function not just or... oh, here's the, so when you go to site, you know, they, they give you the contract. Here's the contract. Here's a copy of your contract. And that's it. They never read that contract, or they may just read the technical part of it, like the design part, the works information, whatever little part is for them. They will just read that part. And that's it, you know, but they need to know more than that. And that's where you add the value into the so team. So how, how do you do it? Because the way I used to do it was this contract audit document that I'd put together, which wouldn't necessarily be sitting with the teams and going through it, but I would be, you know, distilling site, commercial design into different sections and drawing, extracting out what I viewed as the most relevant pertinent bits and pieces to each of those departments. How do you do it? What's your process? I sit down with the team. So the design room, I go into the design room and we have that discussion. The lead designer, we sit down together, we have that discussion. Um, the project manager, we sit down, we say, this is what we need to do. These are, I map everything out. All processes need to be mapped out. You need to understand how everything flows. Engineers, I sit down with the team. This is what it means for you. And they ask questions and they want to know, you know, because one of the things is you can't sit in silos. Gone are the days where commercials sit over here, you know, PM sit over there. Everybody needs to be together now. That's how we're going to make stronger teams, have a wonderful culture, 
and drive you know innovation and profits and build um, things that really work and according to the program you have to work together and also that involves then the supply chain is bringing in the supply chain so you know working with a main contractor coming back to that issue is so you have to ensure that your contract at the top sits pretty that it, it works in practice and you have to be prepared to push back we're not taking these terms or we can't manage these risks so once you're in tender stage for example you get a, a draft contract you need to go through it you need to highlight every single thing what it means for you in compliance the cost each clause could have a figure attached to it what's the risk level you know what does that mean for you in practice what are the lessons learned from previous projects that you can bring here and what are some of the the things that you can scan the horizon you know and think oh in the future this may happen for example rising costs of you know labor or it's funny that materials it, yeah, or, it's really funny that you say that because i saw one of your posts where it was about high material and labor costs obviously something incredibly relevant to all in construction right now i guess a question for you on that you know getting away from we've got the contract how do we manage it to now we've got the contract something has arisen material costs have gone up labor costs have gone up how are you managing this how are you advising this specific issue with your current clients in the current environment <laughs> well it's interesting one of the things we're doing is changing some of the terms that we have so is putting for example there's some clients never considered inflation is changing those making uh, variations to contracts agreeing with the other side uh, reasonable variations also in terms of offers not being valid for 12 months or to say just going just going back to, to making variations to the contracts so you've got a signed contracts and then you're saying right we need to get a deed of variation or a supplemental agreement whatever to change this contract because inflation is at x percent we can't handle it most clients would go sign that we signed that fixed cost fixed price contract we can't change that what how how do you get them to, like that sounds you make it sound so simple yeah we're just varying the contract basically because that doesn't work anymore most people would look at that and go that's a titanic challenge i'm already in the contract how do how do i practically do that no you, you negotiate it, it some th there was one one negotiation that took six months of back and forth but these are long-term projects because as i've said most of the projects that i've worked on are large infrastructure projects so these are long-term or frameworks for example you negotiate with the with the client you go back to them and you say this isn't working and this is why i talk about having responsible clients because and be reasonable because there's no way that a client should be unreasonable. Everyone understands what's going on. There's proof of it for them to say, oh, no, the same way you want me to. And, and clients will do this. If there are savings, you must pass it on to me. So it's the same way if there are losses, we need to share it, too. <laughs> you know, so it's it's about negotiating. And I've done this even more recently is is negotiate better payment terms, for example, and to negotiate an uplift because it's just more 
it's more now. Oftentimes the tender is done like three years ago, two years ago, four years ago. Now you're in like the fifth year of the project or the third year. You can you cannot expect that with everything that's going on that this contractor should foot the bill. But it's a long process. And and then all what, what I found is that the other side, they'll have things that they want to negotiate too, right? Because the contract has been going now for a while. So there was an issue where there was a contract, there were no KPIs. And they saw it, okay, if you want to open back up, no, let's discuss some KPIs. Fine. Let's do that. Oh, you know, but that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because... You know, you you're always in your own, and I've just given you the experience of I can't negotiate that. I'm the, I'm because my experience is being a subcontractor. So you always think I'm never going to be able to get anything out of a main contractor once the contract's signed. But it is an interesting point, and I guess your vantage point as someone who has gone through lots of le- more a legal background, I guess you understand more clearly that a contract is signed. There's always things that people wish to change within the contract, whether you're on side A or side B. And so raising issues is okay. Oh, yeah. I don't see a contract that is signed as the end. I I don't view it like that. You can always open it up. When you sign the contract, that is not the end. And that's why I said that your team needs to also feed back to you how the contract is working in practice for them. Because then you can take that and you can say, for example, the change management process is not working. Let's sit down and figure out a new way. And maybe we need to vary the contract to, to, to ensure that it works better. So you always, the contract is, when you sign the contract, the contract is not like some book that it's the end. <laughs> you know, like you don't just sign it and, it and you put it down and you read it once and you put it. No, it's a living, breathing document. And that's why I say you know, the words come off the page and dance, it, it dances on site. You see it. You see the, the relationship it creates, the culture it creates. And, um, you know, that's why you have some some projects. I'm sure you've been on them where the tension is, you can just cut it with a knife. Everybody is just angry with each other. So read the contract. Read what the contract says. It creates the culture, you know. And so... You, that's you so true. That, that is so yeah, true. You get that feedback from from everyone on site. This doesn't work. Design team says, you know, this doesn't work or that. And then as and that's how you add value as the QS and the commercial manager because then you can say, oh, hey PM, you know what? This isn't working. I've picked up that. Um, you know, they've instructed five changes through the design team. We haven't gotten paid for it, and it's because of this, 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 and this is how we can make it better. Or, hey, PM, we need to go back to them because something in the contract isn't clear. Perhaps we can have this discussion to come have some agreement around what this means. And that's how you add value to the team and to the project. And that's how you start diffusing a lot of the issues that come up in the back end. You know, I, I always say that, you know, you you draft the contract, you do the best that you can with the drafting. <laughs> especially if you're going to draft from scratch. Um, But it's during delivery that the contract really comes to life. And so don't ever think that you sign the contract, even if you're a subcontractor, even if you're like a five gang man company that, and this is what a lot of, um, you know, smaller companies 
um, need to understand is that you have so much power. You can go back. The contract is not the end. If it's not working for you, renegotiate the terms, especially if it's a long-term contract. Renegotiate the terms. And this is what the big guys do. That's why you have supplemental agreements. That's why you have projects with tons of contract variations, tons of changes. You know, they get paid for this, that. And you can do it too. And and tell me, because it, I, I think that that's a huge takeaway from this whole conversation. Tell me if, hypothetical, right? But there'll be people listening that'll be thinking, God, that contract that I'm in, it just isn't working for me because of reason X, Y, and Z. For those people who are listening, who are feeling like that right now, what is your single bit of advice to advance them forward to that next step where they're discussing with their client? So if you feel a contract is not working for you, you need to record it in some fashion. Why it's not working for you? What's not working? What's the impact that it's having on you? And what's the impact that it's having on the project? That's so important. What's the impact it's having on the project? Because their interest is more on the project than you. <laughs> you know, so what is the impact? And you don't have to get fancy. It's just recording things. If you're working on a site, for example, it's taking photos, it's talking to other people, it's jotting it down, file notes, and just putting together something that can evidence why this is not working. And once you feel like you have you know, sufficient evidence, is then to open up to the other side. It's also great if you can find something that the, the other side hasn't realized that is an advantage to them. So, you know, normally in negotiation, you always have something that you can give the other side. <laughs> so, you know, you Here win, I win. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Yeah, it's well, about, I think you make a really good point about make, making an issue for the project, right? And yeah, what saying, is the issue on the project? This isn't just hurting me, it's hurt, you know, hurting everything. How could this make the project better? How could this make your delivery of the project better? And it doesn't have to be financial. It could be health and safety. It could just be user, the design of, um, you know, there isn't, there, there isn't yeah. a bench here. Why isn't there a bench? You know, that would be great. And it's, it's really just showing the impact that it would have. So there's a micro impact, that's you and your business. And there's a macro impact in the terms of the, the, the project itself. And um, it's about show, proving that and then having that discussion with, this, this is how we can make it better. You have to come from a place of this is how we can make it better. Not you are trying to screw me over. Nobody wants that discussion, you yeah, know? <laughs> I need this. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think you could be right. I mean, I think that's a, that's a really nice place to end, actually, Patricia, because I think that will leave people with renewed confidence that they can change things on difficult contracts or difficult moments that they're in on projects. As ever, and today, perhaps more than most i feel like we've barely even started and we are now finishing we're at the end of the show yeah. because you're a fascinating person to speak to and i actually think there's a huge amount more for us to explore i didn't talk about almost any of the linkedin posts that you have done that are so thought-provoking but perhaps we get you back on the show soon and we talk about those for the now for now i will share your linkedin so everyone else can enjoy that in the podcast description and thank you for coming on the show, Patricia. It's been a real pleasure to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I had a, such a wonderful time. I'm so grateful <laughs> to be here.
And thank you so much. And thank you to your listeners. And I just want everybody to know that you have more power than you think you have. And you bring something special to the sector. And the future of construction is SMEs. And on that note, I will leave it there. Couldn't agree with you more, Patricia. And everyone else, I will speak to you next week. Thank you.